0: raise your hand and uh, these guys will be glad to give you one go ahead and turn to psalm 119 not psalm 1 but psalm 119 now i need everybody to look up here and go Phew. you know why you're doing that yeah very good Beverly. because we're not going over all that stuff you were given today because I know you were looking look at that going, there, there's no way in West Memphis. That clown's getting through all that today. So we're not going to finish this today, but we're also not going to go over all that. A lot of that I've given to you. We will mention it, but I've given it to you just to uh, peruse on your own. I kind of explain as we go through. So a lot of it is for you to take home, memorize, and come back next week. Press every one. All right. Now, something really important. How many of you have a Kroger Plus card? If you're breathing, you live in Memphis area, you probably have a Kroger Plus card. They have started, they're changing the way they, um, the information is in your bulletin, but just briefly let me explain something to you. If you take your Kroger Plus card and you go to that website, which if I can do it, Trust me, anybody can do it. You take your Kroger Plus card, have it there with you, and you can designate Christ Church as your charity of choice. And everything you buy at Kroger, they would donate a percentage of that back to us. So if you're going to shop at Kroger anyway, and you don't have another charity that you would prefer, and if you have another one that you would prefer, then God will get you. That's a joke. It's like, God's going to get that. Anyway, I know, the, uh, for example, uh, many band boosters do it, and others do it, and that's certainly fine. But if you don't have a charity that you've chosen to designate, you're not currently doing that. They, the cards will no longer work that you have. You remember the Kroger cards you got here, and it, over the years, they're changing that as of this month. So you'll have to go to that website and take your Kroger Plus card, and then you can designate. The details are there how to do it. My wife is also an expert in it. Yeah, well, she's read it and. She'll be out in the lobby if you've got questions, but it should be, if you go to that website, I think it'll walk you through it. It's self-explanatory if you'd like to do that, and uh, I mean, it's an easy way to, con- they will contribute to church, and all you're doing is shopping Kroger. I think it excludes gas, however, and I find that hard to believe, but uh, I think it excludes gas and cigarettes and alcohol, so Mary I have to get her a beer So All right. <laughs> I can't go home now, can I? Son of a gun. We are celebrating today, uh, and and very few of you know a guy named Jim Kaler. Jim and I came to work for uh, for Central North Church the same month in 1984. I came April 1st, he came about two weeks later, and Jim is 165. And Jim's amazing. He's 83, I believe, and skating and doing flips off a diving board when he was late 70s. And I was like, you do that. I just, Jim was an incredible man, one of my heroes. He's finally retiring, retiring, and moving back to Milan. His daughter is there, and Jim's wife, B is very sweet kind of ill so we're celebrating his life today and they're having they're doing that at uh, the Bartlett Camp where Jim's preacher today and telling his famous big Jim story for those who remember that and uh, Jim for my children and there's no telling how many people this man's led to Jesus I don't know how I love Jim and I hope when I am 83 I am half the man anyway if you get a chance today if you have time as soon as church is over if I'll shut my mouth and get out of here you can run to Bartlett and they're going to have a such to honor Jim Jim, the other day we were sitting in staff meeting, and Jim was Jim's last staff meeting. And he said, Randy, you remember that time you preached and you told that joke? He said, that's the best joke I've ever heard. I still tell people that joke. So I'm going to tell it for you today in honor of Jim Kaler. The best joke I've ever told, first time I ever preached, I told this joke. You know why when you you go fish, you take two Baptists with you? You take one, he drinks all your beer. If you take two, they don't drink any. (laughs) Apparently it was the best joke I ever told. It's the only joke that's ever got laughs. When I told her in 1989, it was like, good thing he's got a tie on. All right, turn to Psalm 119, if you haven't done that already, and take your handout. And, we'll, and I'll walk you through the, uh, the handout, so just uh, uh, may not get to all of that today, but uh, you have it. So, you notice the title of today's message is, The Bible is Truth. We've been going through this series, What is Truth? A great question that Pilate asked Jesus when he came before him, the night before they crucified him, and Pilate says, what is truth? And and the, the, honestly, man's been asking that question since man's been on the planet. We've gone over all that. We're not going to do that again. But the reason this is such a passion for me, and, and the reason I wanted to do this, is it's leading up to us, for an understanding for us as believers, not specifically and exclusively to Christ's church, obviously But nobody else is listening to me, but you guys. So this is where God has me for now. But why is it this is so important to us? There are a lot of people that that they have a lot of. There's a lot of different sacred books out there, and we're going to over the next couple of weeks look at the Bible. Why do we choose the Bible as the book we will follow? Do we just do it because somebody told us to? And I used to think that was the case. Why the Bible? And we're going to look at that over the next two weeks. And the reason that's so important for us as Christians is that we take the book as God's word. Not just a dusty old volume written by a bunch of different uh, crazy people over a period of time. But we believe it to be God's inspired writings given to men God's inspired word given to certain men to write down to record for eternity for us and that when I read and studied scripture literally it is my heavenly Father the omnipotent omniscient God of the universe saying Randy pay attention Randy learn this Randy do this Randy stop that Randy here's what how you res- what your response should be to that there's it's incredible when you take the time to actually study the Bible and not just read it with a surface examination, how, how incredibly deep it is. We were studying, we are studying Hebrews in my 930 class, and today we looked at that verse where it talks about the Bible is alive. It is alive. If you take your Bible and lay it down on the floor, what's it going to do? Probably not going to crawl away or talk or anything, but obviously it's the living Word of God. It penetrates where it divides a soul from a spirit. Mentally dwell on that for a moment. How do you divide a soul from a spirit? The Word of God has the capacity to do that because it is alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. It can divide a soul from a spirit. It can divide the, the marrow and the bones and the, the joints themselves. All those metaphors that God used show us When you read this book, it's not just a book written by these gentlemen. It is me speaking to you. Look at Deuteronomy 32 there on your handout. This is kind of our verses for the series. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. I ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. That's who we believe that our God is. What we're doing as we go through this process of looking at what is truth is coming to an understanding. All right, if God is, if there is a God, who is he? If he is the God of the Bible, which is what we believe, then what is our response to him supposed to be? Who is Jesus? Is he who the Bible says that he is? As we look at all of those things, we're building a case for truth. In that famous verse from John 8, 32, what does Jesus say? Truth does what? Set you free. Set free not only from the penalty of sin and being able to go to heaven when we die. I mean, that's the icing on the cake. But we're set free from bondage. We're set free from someone else dominating us. We no longer have to have sin as our master. We no longer have to be floundering around wondering what is life all about? What is my purpose in existence? Why am I here? God answers those things generally and in many cases specifically for you. For example, I know why God put me on this planet and not just to be pretty, not just to be funny, he put me here because he get, and he saved me and he gave me a gift to share the word of God. There's no higher calling a human being can have on his or her life than to say, I am a believer. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me share that good news with you. And some of us are privileged enough to do it as leaders in the church. It's a rare privilege and one we should take very seriously. Unfortunately, many don't. So when we come to God's word, we've got to decide as Christians, why do I believe this? 2,700 times the Bible you're holding in your hand, over 2,700 times it proclaims itself to be God's word. The Lord God speaking to us. It has the information about heaven, about hell, about the God himself, about eternality, salvation, our origins. And you could go on and on. You find all of those things. We've talked a lot about some of those. It claims to be completely true. It claims that it will change you forever. The words of this book, if you respond to them. Look at Psalm 119. I'm, we're gonna, this, this whole psalm is about the word of God. We are not going to read the whole psalm so you can go, what? What can you do? Thank you. That's a spirit term. I like it. We are the All right. We're going to read a few verses, just a couple of examples from Psalm 119. And every now and then, if you want to do something that's really cool as a devotional, just go to Psalm 119 and pick a little section. It's a, they're divided up and it's divided up into many little sections. Just read that section and meditate on what God is saying. We're just going to hit some highlights today. Psalm 119, verse 9. Let me get to the right page. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. If I want to have a life that's pure, obey the word of God. Look at verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. I need revival in my life. I need to be resuscitated. I need to understand what life is all about. I can go to the word of God. Verse 28. My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. When you're hurting, when you're down, look at that, that metaphor. My soul melts from heaviness. Somebody that you love is dying. Somebody you care deeply about has been diagnosed with a terminal illness. You can't fix that. and It's just killing you. You can go to the word of God and be reminded as you read it who your father is, who your God is. You can be strengthened from the word of God. Go to verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. No matter what's going on, you may be being persecuted. Whatever's going on, your life revolves around your God, and your God speaks to you from his word. Look at verse 67. 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Change you changed me. You saved me. Now I want to live for you. Verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. It be a nice verse for the, most people in our nation to memorize. Look at that verse one more time. As a believer, the law of your mouth, what God has to say, is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in your word. And no matter what's going on, that people know that I'm a person of the Word of God. They know that it matters to me. It's not just something that I carry around to church. I study it. I learn it. I have devotions in it. I believe it, that I have hope. My favorite word in the Bible to describe a Christian. I have hope, confident expectation, because I believe the God of the Bible is real. He is my God. Verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth, and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances, for all are your servants. Unless your law had been my delight, I would have perished, then have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you've given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. It's your life. What we're going to do today is look at this book just a little bit, historically and in some different ways, to understand how significant it is that we believe, without reservation, not just because it's what we choose, but we are totally convinced that when you read the Bible, you are reading an inerrant, fallible truth from God himself. Norman Geisler, who's a president of Southern Evangelical Seminary, tremendous writer, speaker, apologist, puts it this way, it all comes down to this. If the Bible is not reliable, then Christianity is a hoax. And unlike any other religion, Christianity stands or falls based on the historical truth of an event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the things that I love about the Bible is that it doesn't pull punches. When you read it, it tells you the good, it tells you the bad about the people in it. Why? Because it's the truth. It doesn't hide anything. And we stand or fall based on the events that are recorded here, whether they're true or not, that Jesus Christ either rose from the dead, physically walked out of his tomb, and his, an historical event that occurred, or what we believe is a lie. There on your outline, look at 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. You see the exclamation point there. Paul's making a point. If Jesus Christ had not risen to the dead, we're wasting our time, you have no hope, you are still in your sin, and there is no hope for redemption. Also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Your loved ones who died trusting in Jesus, if he did not rise from the dead, they didn't go to heaven because this is a lie, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If in this life only, if in this life only, we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, or the most to be pitied. In other words, our... Faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he didn't rise from the dead, we're not going to be together again with our loved ones who knew Jesus, claimed to know Jesus. When we die, if he did not rise from the dead, what we're doing is a game, and people should laugh at us like they do. They should mock us, and we should be pitied because we're religious fanatics, we're Jesus freaks, and we're nuts if he did not rise from the dead. But this passage goes on to say, and it's not on your outline, but passage goes on to say, but now Christ is and has become firstfruits. In other words, Jesus rose the dead, so when I die, I will because of his resurrection, I will live forever. My loved ones who have died in Christ are living forever with Jesus. We will be together again because Christ is risen. If not, we might as well throw these Bibles away and just have a good time. Just enjoy each other. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and that's it. So either it's true or it's not. The Apostle John put it this way We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Jesus came and gave us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. No understanding, true. In that one little passage, like one verse, he mentioned true three times in referencing Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. What did he mean by that? Means I'm. he meant I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I've told you this before, but i never forget it. Several years ago, around Easter every year, the paper used to print sermons. I don't know if they still do or not. But there was a sermon in there, one year. A lady was preaching on that passage. And it was on John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And then she went to explain how he didn't mean he was the only way to know God. That was her sermon. How do you get that out of that? Because she wasn't interested in truth. You see, people, what we ultimately will, will discover is what people are interested in is what they want to believe. We talked about truth not being relative. Whether I like it or not, something is true. Remember the gravity illustration? It costs a paycheck. Remember that? Whether I believe it or not, it's true. So it comes down to don't confuse me with the truth. I'm going to believe, and that's fine. You have the right to do that. But don't call it truth. Just call it, this is what I want to believe. Matter of fact, that would be a great name for a church. This is the church if this is what I want to believe. We laugh, but the truth, pardon the pun, is that's where a lot of places are. There are churches in this town, they don't care what you believe, Just they they're might mod- just believe something. You know who loves that? Just believe something? Satan loves that. Satan is as religious, he loves religion. Believe whatever you want and do and work and give and do your religious things. Just don't admit life to Christ's activity as the only way to know God. Don't get saved. Don't follow him. Be religious. The Pharisees were the most religious people that ever walked the planet. What did Jesus tell them? You are going to hell. Jesus said that to them. The most religious men that have ever walked the planet. Jesus looked them in the eye and said, you're going to hell, and you're taking people with woe unto you. The Bible is truth. We believe that. Let's look at why we believe that. Number one, because it all comes down to this, the Bible is either true or it's not. Number one, the Bible is historically reliable it's historically reliable so what we're going to start out with we're going to go over some of your handouts so get the time for you to bow up all right number one we're going to look at the fact the bible is historically reliable based on archaeological evidence take the handout that says you've got a sampling of old testament archaeological discoveries everybody got that one two sides eight and a half by eleven everybody have that one hold it up wave it say Woo, i'm excited all right We're not going to go over all this. I just want to hit the highlights, because here's what I'd like you to do. The reason I gave you this, by the way, this is just a small sampling. Again, I could give you just pages and pages and reams. This is a small sampling of things that have been discovered, not by Bible scholars, but by archaeologists who were just digging and found things that then when they went back and read the Bible, what did these things, what did they suddenly discover? That what the Bible had said was true. For example, see the side that says House of David. Does everybody have that one? I know it's got two sides with the same heading. And on the heading, it says House of David up at the top. You see that one? It says the argument: critics argued that for lack of evidence for King, there was no lack of there was no evidence for King David outside the biblical record pointed to him. So they said it was a myth. There was nobody named David. That that was just a myth. You only could find it in the Bible. In 1993, at a place called Tel Dan in northern Israel, an inscription referring to the House of David was discovered. You see a picture of it there. Uh, King Herod's name was discovered in an ancient wine jug in 1996. Hard to believe that Herod would drink, but if you read the Bible, it's party city. All right, uh, on and on. The Law Code of Hammer Rabbi. Interesting higher criticism, which was a, a, a nice term for we don't like the Bible argued that the Pentateuch first five books of our Bible could not have been written by Moses since writing and advanced laws were not in existence at the time of Moses. In 1902 they discovered the detailed laws of Hammurabi which was predating Moses by at least three centuries. The point was it did exist. The Hittites, uh, the critics argued there were no Hittites at the time of Abraham. They found proof that they did exist. Jeremiah scribe at the bottom, Barak son of Nariah, Discovered in 1986, King Yehu and the black obelisk of Shalmaneser, uh, on and on. Turn it over. You see the cylinder of Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Jerusalem was found, and uh, there's some verses here. I, t- I would encourage you to take this home and just read it. Maybe put it in your Bible. Just kind of keep it in there as an encouragement, as a reminder that when you read these things that they're true. Now, my favorite is the fall of Jericho. You see that one? In Joshua 6. You remember the story? They walked, They marched around the walls and God told them what to do. And how did the walls fall according to the Bible? Did they fall did they crumble down? They fell how? They just fell over. Whole units of what so people would read that with a brain and say, What? That's impossible. That did not happen. It couldn't happen that way. Well, guess what they discovered? Read you some details. If some of it's on there and I'll let you you can hang on to that. In nineteen ninety, this was in Time magazine, that bastion of spiritual truth. In nineteen ninety Jericho was the first city destroyed by Joshua and the Israelites as they entered the promised lands and they took the city. God would not allow them to remove anything. They were to burn it all. God decreed that the city was never to be rebuilt again and uttered a curse on it. Joshua 6.26. You can read it for yourself. Time Magazine explained that the lead archaeologist found that the, quote, found that the walls had fallen in a way suggestive of sudden collapse. They fell down, end quote. By the way, if you read Joshua, how does it say the walls fell? They suddenly collapsed and fell down, exactly what they discovered in 1990. Moreover, quote from Time, the archaeologists found bushels of grain on the site, a thick layer of soot at the site, which supports the biblical idea that the city was burned, not simply conquered. This was in Time Magazine, March 5, 1990. Archaeological evidence, not by Bible scholars, but by critics and skeptics. Some other quick examples. Uh, Genesis 16 talks about Abraham's wives and uh, some of the things that uh, they told their husband to do. No, No wife would ever do that. They found again in 1901. Found proof that that did occur. Camels in Egypt, Genesis 12. uh, Critics say it was too early for camels in Egypt. Uh, They found later that there were camels in Egypt. Uh, Jericho, we talked about. Solomon's stables in 1 Kings chapter 9. So there couldn't be a city devoted just to horses. When they dug at a place called Megiddo, which is where it's mentioned in the Bible, they found a city devoted, devoted just to that. Again, exactly what the Bible had said. So archaeologically, again, sampling of evidence. Why is this important? So let's say you're sharing your faith with someone, and they say to you, well, we talked about this a little bit when we were looking at some other evidence. When they you're sharing your faith with someone, you say, I believe the Bible is true, and they're laughing and saying, there's no way that the Bible is true. You can use examples, and this is what Paul did in Acts chapter 17. It's a marvelous example of how to share your faith. He went into to Greece into uh, Athens, and he witnessed to all the philosophers there, and he never once quoted Scripture he said, I, I noticed that you're very religious and that you're looking for God. Let me try to explain who that God is to you, leading them to an understanding that it wasn't what they thought, but God was something totally different. You could share with people, shows here in the Bible and Joshua that this is the way Jericho fell, and then you can show them the article from Time Magazine in 1990, which proves that that is true. What do they have to say? Wow. How did Joshua, he just wrote down what he recorded, didn't make sense. And that's, again, I mentioned earlier. One of the reasons the Bible is so fascinating is that it just tells you the truth. It doesn't sugarcoat it. It just tells you the truth, archaeologically, that it's true. Uh, just a couple of other examples. We'll skip some of these. They found a stone uh, naming Pilate. Uh, the Pool of Siloam, where Jesus healed the blind man in John 9, was discovered in June 2004. Uh, Nineveh, the city of Assyria that Jonah was to go to. Uh, Many, many things were discovered there that just saving time. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which you've all heard of in 1947, they found the uh, scrolls there that dated earlier than any uh, current manuscripts that they had by a thousand years. And they demonstrated conclusively that the Old Testament had been miraculously, that the Old Testament scriptures had been preserved just like they had been written. That we, we have them. Uh, they found the ossuary and the bones of Caiaphas, who Jesus went before in 1900, with Temple Mount on and on, that the Bible is archaeologically true, all right? Second example, manuscript evidence, manuscript evidence. The Bible is true with manuscript evidence. Why is this important? Take the handout you have there. It says, A Comparison of Ancient Works with the New Testament. You got that one? Hold it up. All right, good. When you look at this, and again, we're not going to go over all this. I want you to drop down to the bottom. You see where it's in the far left-hand column where it says author? Down at the bottom, NT. What would that stand for? Very good, New Testament. The date written, A.D. 50 to 100, within that first generation. The earliest manuscripts, A.D. 130, manuscripts from who were written A.D. 50 to 100. They have manuscripts dating to A.D. 130. So that time gap is about 40 years. Okay, the old number, what this means, old number, new number, is how many old manuscripts we used to think there were and how many they have discovered. This is a very recent uh, article I got this from. The old number was five thousand three hundred and sixty six, the new number is five thousand seven hundred and ninety five. That's how many manuscripts they have. Now, what I want you to do is go back to the far left hand column. How many of you know who Homer is? He's not some redneck you grew up with. Everybody know who Homer is? You read him in school, the Iliad, the Odyssey, things like that. Alright? Herodotus, Sophocles you've probably heard of, Plato, obviously Caesar, Livy, Tacitus, Pliny the Elder, some of these people you've never heard of. I went to school with Caesar. He's a pretty nice guy. All right. But these names like Homer, Sophocles, Plato, Caesar, these are people, does anyone question that these were, that these people existed? No. Or that their manuscripts are accurate. What I want you to notice is look at the, or the column, earliest manuscripts for all of those. And then look down at the New Testament. You see how much closer the original time of the New Testament was than these? All right? The time gap. And how much more the time gap is in all of those? Now, what, the far column, I want you to notice, we'll go to the new column, which is giving them the benefit of the doubt. And look at how many manuscripts there are. Did everybody see that? Go all the way to the top. Let's go with Homer. That's the example most people use. Homer, the most manuscripts they have is 1,757. Drop down to the New Testament, 5,795. So if my math is correct, that's a little over 4,000 more manuscripts of what? Yet do we question whether the New Testament is true or not? All the time. But we don't question whether Homer wrote the Iliad or the Odyssey, do we? All right, why is this important? Let me give you a simple example. Let's say you turn to the person next to you. Everybody turn to the person next to you and say, I'm going to ask you to do something. All right, here's what I want you to do. I've written an essay. Hold your piece of paper up. I've written this essay. Now, I'm going to hand it to the person next to me, and and then five more people. So everybody on your row, and I want you to copy my essay. Just write it down yourself, all right? Then I want each of you to ask five more people to copy the same essay. All right, you with me? It's like a chain letter. You ever get those chain emails, send this on or at the end of your life if you don't do it? All right. So you start out. All right, Eddie says, here, I want you, Kim, I want you to write this. You pass it down. You, write, you pass it to five people. You pass it to five people. By the time you get to the fourth generation, we'll get this right so you have it. By the time you get to the fifth generation, you would have 4,000 copies. Now, in the process, what's going to happen? We'll take Dick Hunter's row. As sweet as these people are, they might make some mistakes, correct? Not Dick Hunter, but somebody else might. You pass it to the next person, they give it to five other people, they give it to five other people, and now you've got thousands of copies that might have some simple errors in them, right? But here's the difference. Out of those 4,000, are they all going to make the same errors? No. So if you take all the copies and you want to make one manuscript, you could get pretty close to the original essay written by, let's say, Dick Hunter, right? That's exactly what we have with the New Testament. Share a quote with you. A guy named John Winham who did this study. The result of all this is an incredibly accurate New Testament text that in spite of the great diversity in the copies, the texts are still relatively homogeneous. he says. The only satisfactory answer seems to be that its homogeneity stems from an exceedingly early text, virtually that is from the autographs. In other words, that written by John, that written by Peter, that written by Paul. The resulting text is 99.99% accurate and the remaining questions do not affect any area of cardinal Christian doctrine. The Dead Sea Scrolls, end quote. The Dead Sea Scrolls that I mentioned to you earlier, when they found those at Qumran, and I've been to Qumran, it's an interesting. They won't let you go up in the caves, but it's interesting to go there by the Dead Sea and, and see that. The the Dead Sea Scrolls that they found, they they predated the earliest extant text that they had, the Masoretic text, by almost a thousand years. Yet in spite of this vast time, time span, a thousand years, there were no substantive differences at all. In fact, they looked at Isaiah 53, there were only 17, 17 changes between the Masoretic text and those they found at Qumran over a thousand years. And 10 of those 17 changes were spelling differences, 4 were style differences, and 3 involved Hebrew letters for the word like, just different letters. In other words, no substance at all. And what's his point? What's my point? Why am I boring you with all this? Is that when you pick up the Bible, you can be, this is not... Uh, An opinion, it's not a a religious choice. You could pick up the Bible and know with certainty that it's truth. Why is that important? You have an incredibly accurate book. And I think what we're going to do is stop there today because I want to spend some time on some of this other stuff, and I don't want to get into that today because there's a a lot of detail there that I want to make sure that you see. Why is this so important? What's the title of our series? What is truth? There are a lot of people that go to church just because that's what you're supposed to do. What I want us to understand and what I want us to be is a body of believers that is totally convinced that Jesus is the Christ. That term means the anointed one, unique Savior. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Like Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We have no other other place to go. And that we, because we believe that, because we believe that it's the truth, that we surrender to it. That we're excited about other people knowing that. That our Bible is historically accurate. What we've looked at over the last couple weeks is that it's scientifically accurate. For those of you who weren't here last week, if if nothing else, when you look at creation and you look at the scientific evidence and you lay it over the Bible, amazing. The Bible is absolutely accurate. It's not a book of science, but when it speaks in that arena, it's absolutely accurate. Everything they discover is pointing back to it. Why is that important? Because then we can come to our Bible and say, complete confidence, God's word does not return. When the Bible says Jesus died, for it, that's exactly what happened. When the Bible says Jesus is the only way a man can God, that's truth. Because everybody you know truth. If you know Jesus found, what I wanted you to be excited about, sharing the truth with other people. To you bow your heads. Father, we do thank you simply for truth, that Jesus Christ is alive. He rose from the dead. He is the truth. Therefore, he's the way and he's the life. I pray as Christians we'd be excited about that that we'd want to share Jesus with our world and giving every opportunity to do so, gently, respectfully, lovingly, dialogue, interact, pray for our neighbors, our family, co-workers, even strangers that we encounter, that they might know Jesus Christ because he will change their lives forever. So Lord, as we close out today's service, I pray for all of us as believers, we would be excited about truth and about Jesus, who is the truth. And Lord, if if there's someone here who doesn't know Jesus Christ, that they would examine the evidence and say, I believe he is the Son of God. And Jesus, I believe you died for me. Please forgive me, save me. I want to be a follower of you. We pray in Jesus' name.